one of us would be feeding her and one of us would be pumping, but because she was eating so little, whoever fed her, like I also had to be pumping. So once every three hours, we were both pumping so much that the pumps became known as the cows. And, and our son at one point suggested we all take a holiday with, you know, all five of us. And we're like, five, you know, it's like you, mom, mommy, the baby, and uh, the cows will be coming with us. And they were a part of our family. Welcome to the Breastfeeding with ABA podcast. It's a podcast brought to you by volunteers with the Australian Breastfeeding Association. Breastfeeding with ABA is a podcast about breastfeeding made by parents for parents. In this episode, we'll be talking about the LGBTQIA community and an exciting new collaboration between Rainbow Families New South Wales and the Australian Breastfeeding Association. This episode is intended to be suitable for anyone, no matter their knowledge or experience of the LGBTQIA community. We'd like to extend our thanks to Rainbow Families New South Wales and their representative, our guest Bridget, for generously sharing explanations of their community. We extend our respect to all Indigenous members of the LGBTQIA community, including sister girls, brother boys, and their communities. We are recording this podcast in different parts of Australia, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording and which you are listening to this podcast. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to any Aboriginal people who are listening today. In each episode, you'll hear from different parents around Australia. My name is Nicole and I'm a volunteer counsellor and community educator with the Australian Breastfeeding Association. I'm speaking from my home on the lands of the Darug people in Western Sydney, New South Wales. I have three children, two daughters and one son, and they are currently aged between 10 and 21 years. Hi, my name is Bridget and I'm a volunteer on the Welfare and Community Subcommittee for Rainbow Families New South Wales. And I'm speaking on Bidigal Gadigal land in East Sydney, New South Wales. I have two children, one aged eight and the other one is aged 13. Thank you, Bridget, and thank you for joining us today. First off, could you tell us a little bit about Rainbow Families New South Wales and what they do? Rainbow Families New South Wales is a non-for-profit grassroots organisation here in New South Wales, and we are the voice of LGBTQIA plus families and prospective parents in New South Wales. We advocate for, empower and celebrate our community and we really run by the community for the community. So all our volunteers, including board committee members, are LGBTQIA plus parents themselves. Some of the key projects are writing submissions to the government regarding any policies that may impact our family and our community. And we also develop resources that are free. For example, we have a trans and gender diverse parents resource that was put together about three years ago now. We also have an, a guide for parents that are in the early years and also a school support guide as well and a few other resources. We also run parenting courses and antenatal courses in partnership with New South Wales Health, including a very new program that's an antenatal course specifically for gay dads. And we also run playgroups across the board, monthly catch-ups, and we have an annual resilience camp that we've been running for the last three years for primary school kids and queer and trans parents and so much more. 
So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, which is rainbowfamilies.com.au if you want to see what else we do or how to get involved. That's fantastic, Bridget. It sounds like you've got such a wonderful support network there. I know we often hear a lot of terms being thrown around when referring to the queer community. Perhaps you could explain what the current acronym is and what it all means. Yes, I can understand there's often a lot of confusion. So the acronym that we're using is LGBTQIA+. And within Australia, there are a few slight variations and then there's even more variations in the global context. So L stands for lesbian, which is a female identifying person attracted to other female identifying people. Then you have the G for gay, a male identifying person attracted to male identifying people. Although gay can also be used for anyone in a same-sex relationship as well. The B stands for bisexual. The bisexual community is quite diverse in itself, but it's really folks that are attracted to female identifying folks and male identifying folks or beyond genders. Then we have T, which stands for transgender. And transgender is someone who's been assigned a sex at birth based on the appearance of their genitals. But their gender identity, which is an internal feeling that you have about yourself, is not in line with that sex that you has been assigned to you. The transgender community is really diverse in itself. And many uh, trans folks really go on their own journeys. I just want to acknowledge that there is no, like, this is what it means to be transgender. And then you have Q for queer. So queer has been used as a derogatory term in the past, and actually it still is sometimes. But the community has reclaimed this word in terms of an empowering word. Someone who might use the word queer could be someone who's in a same-sex relationship and they just identify with that word more. Someone might identify with the queer political movement, the gay rights movement, and that side of things. Someone might not quite fit into all the other uh, experiences and feel that queer is the better term for them. People use it for various reasons. And then we have I for intersex. And the intersex community are a diverse population with many different kinds of bodies, sex characteristics, sex assignments, genders, identities, life experiences, and terminology and word preferences. Intersex folks share in common an experience of having innate sex characteristics that differ from medical norms, I'm using <laughs> quotation marks here, medical norms of female and male bodies. So this is about bodily diversity. That definition is actually from the Intersex Human Rights Australia page, and they do a lot of advocacy work and education. And then we have A. Now, A stands for asexual. Some people get confused and they think A stands for allies, but A stands for asexual. And the asexual community is quite diverse as well. It's quite a spectrum. And basically, an asexual person does not experience sexual attraction. So they might experience romantic feelings or sensual attraction, but not a sexual attraction. So there's a few differences there. They're not drawn to people sexually and do not desire to act upon attraction to others in a sexual way. 
There's a lot of information on the website run by AVEN, and they are a global organization that do a lot of education around asexuality because it is one of the communities that is often misunderstood and there's a lot of myths. So for example, some asexual people do have sex and some actually do sometimes enjoy it. And there are also asexual parents. And then the plus on the end. So the plus is actually really important. The plus acknowledges that this is not the full story of our community <laughs> and that it's really even more diverse and expansive. There are so many more identities and orientations out there. And I just want to acknowledge that some of these experiences and identities within the acronym also overlap as well. So for example, my partner is a trans woman and she identifies as lesbian. So a few other words that I'm just going to explain. One of the words is cisgender. So we're starting to hear that a lot more now. And cisgender is really the opposite to transgender. So cis literally means same in Latin. So cisgender is someone who is assigned sex at birth based on their genitals and their gender expression, which is that internal feeling inside, that connection of yourself with the gender, is in line with the sex that you were assigned at birth. And then another word that seems to pop up a lot is cishet or cis-heteronormativity, which is quite a big mouthful. And that's really a societal assumption that folks are cisgender and heterosexual. So some other words are birthing parent. So birthing parent is the person who births the baby. Feeding from the body, which is a fairly new term actually, when a baby or child is being fed from a human by being attached to their body around the nipple. So it could be even used for someone who is using um, like a supplemental nursing system, for example, so feeding from the body. And then the other word is lactating parent. So this is the parent whose body is making milk for the baby or a child. And there's so many other words out there. So I'm just going to really encourage the listeners to utilize Google because we're at a time where there is an abundance of knowledge and information on Google. They're actually really good information. Just take the initiative to, to do that yourself as well. So what are some of the scenarios that members of the queer community may find themselves in when it comes to breastfeeding their children? Yeah, so a few scenarios that may come up could be example number one. It could be a couple and they're going to have their first baby. And one of them is the birth parent who is a cisgender woman. And her partner is a transgender woman. And together they both decide that, you know, it would be lovely to co-nurse. So co-nursing is about sharing the nursing relationship with another person. So you're both feeding the baby from the body. So that might be one situation. So how would a trans woman, whether she has taken hormones to support her transition or not, how can she get support? That might be one scenario that might come up in our community. Another example might be a trans masculine man so someone assigned female at birth however identifies as male who might be a single parent and considering having a baby via sperm donation and perhaps as part of this story they have had chest surgery 
and they would like to feed their baby from their body. So that might be another uh, scenario that might come up. So how would that, you know, how could that person get the information and support? Another situation that may come up, which I've actually heard of overseas, is two cisgender gay dads having a baby via surrogacy and really wanting to feed their baby human milk. So that might be another situation that could come up. So they might look at perhaps some donor milk or they might look at some support using a supplemental nursing system. Another example might be similar to the first one around co-nursing. So there might be two cisgender women and one of them is going to birth the baby and they would both like to feed the baby through co-nursing. Elka and Andrea live in Melbourne with their children, a seven-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl. Elka is an environmental lawyer and Andrea is an evaluator. Elka, Andrea, could you please tell us a little bit about your family? Well, I, I guess we're fairly mundane family living in Melbourne, occasionally drinking too much coffee. Uh, we've got two mums and um, we are, I've got an American accent, so apologies for that in advance. So I did not grow up in Australia, Elka did. And uh, our kids, one goes to primary school and one's in kindy and we all live in the same house. Fabulous. So perhaps you'd like to share with us a little bit about your experience feeding your babies. Obviously, as a lesbian couple, we had to go through sourcing sperm somewhere else. So our story of like coming to having babies at all was pretty lengthy and complicated. So we have, we ended up each carrying one child. So I carried our son, Andrea carried our daughter, which wasn't plan A, it was plan F, W, somewhere there. (laughs) Um, It was a long way down the plan list, but that's how it happened. Uh, With our son, I carried him and breastfed him for about 20 months until he just kind of tailed off of his own accord. And then, yeah, four years later, we had our daughter, which Andrea carried. And we both breastfed her. So it was a very different experience. Oh, absolutely. So what challenges have you encountered when sharing breastfeeding? So I carried our daughter. And when I gave birth to her, she was slightly underweight enough that they kept us in the hospital a bit longer and had a bit of jaundice and went on to that pump and feed cycle almost instantly. So I think just initially making sure enough was getting into her and me being A mum who was new to breastfeeding, even though I had a a four-year-old son at the time, was really interesting. I think some, a lot of them just somehow walked in, assumed I knew what I was doing, and I definitely benefited from their coaching, which was really good. So yeah, it was that, you know, every three hours, round the clock. That wasn't too challenging because you don't think about it. You just blindly walk through the experience. But what made it challenging then, I think, is it wasn't sort of this natural back and forth flow between Elks and I like, oh, I'll, I'll feed this time when she cries and you go that time. And it turned into a lot of scheduling. And when you were trying to induce lactation, that it involved you pumping on the mechanical pumps once every three hours as well. Mm-hmm. So basically one of us would be feeding her and one of us would be pumping, but because she was eating so little, whoever fed her, like I also had to be pumping. So once every three hours, we were both pumping so much that the pumps became known as the cows. And, and our son at one point suggested we all take a holiday with, you know, all five of us. And we're like, five, you know, it was like <laughs> you, mom, mommy, the baby, 
and uh, the cows will be coming with us. They were a part of our family. And, you know, little things eventually, we got mobile ones. We can hang them around our necks so we could do the dishes. But essentially, it was quite um, tethering. It was such a different experience. So with my son, I just fed him. There was no particular, you know, he had a, a slight tongue tie at the start, but there was no real problems with the feeding. I had enough milk. It was all fairly straightforward. And then with our daughter, I knew that I wanted to try breastfeeding her as well. So Andrea immediately after birth did those first few weeks. But in that time, I was trying to get my milk supply up. So I, I had been on Domperidone and then I was pumping every three hours. So neither of us were ever getting any more than like two and a half hours sleep ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and of course, we had a four-year-old as well. So it was pretty, in hindsight, it was, it was just stupidly exhausting and draining at that point. It was, it was really, actually really tough. The funny thing is that I'm still breastfeeding her. So she's heading for three and a half now. And Andrea kind of tailed off around the eight-week eight mark or three months. And I've been doing it since then. And it, it actually got extended for a long time because of COVID because I was always at home. There was no problem breastfeeding her to bed every night because it's not like I was going to be anywhere else. And now we're down to, you know, two or three feeds a week when she happens to ask for it. But it's, it's become a really long-term lovely thing. But those first few weeks were really hard. We've heard about some of the challenges, but what are some of the best parts about sharing breastfeeding? I thought it was really nice. So I fed her for about eight weeks and stopped. And then I thought, no, I I actually really liked it. Like I I was originally just sort of like, Campbell, that'll be great, you know. Um, And then I went back and ended up pumping and feeding her the 6 a.m. and the 6 p.m. feeds. Mm -hmm. And it was when she could actually just latch on and there wasn't like pumps afterwards. So for, for a couple of months, until she was about six months old. It was just lovely. Just those early mornings and the late nights, but not having to do the overnight and not having to do like yeah, during the day, I, I went back to work. Like, you know, all of that happened. I didn't have to do anything really, but just provide milk twice. And I confess I have technically weaned her, but the other week Elka was gone for five days and I may or may not have just been like, oh, just here. And I was like, is there any milk? And she's like, yeah, there's milk. There's still milk. <laughs> and I was like, you're kidding. And I squeezed. I was like, oh my God, there is. So just little moments like that are pretty cute. Our bodies are pretty amazing, aren't they? Yeah. So what do you think people should know about sharing breastfeeding? So one of the things that I think we made our own life much more difficult was that, so Andrea started off breastfeeding and doing all the breastfeeding. And then I transitioned in as she transitioned out. So we were kind of doing this weird juggle where she was trying to make sure she didn't get mastitis and I was trying to get my supply up by pumping lots to kind of take over. I think if people were doing a scenario where from birth they both did some of the breastfeeding, they're not trying to sort of manage and change flows. They're just ongoingly sort of sharing it. And, and that actually sounds quite lovely. <laughs> so obviously you've got someone else to do some of the feeds overnight or, you know, it's, it's a much more shared and fluid arrangement. Whereas what we, the way we did it, we just had to communicate a lot about our breasts. Yeah. (laughs) And we had to um, constantly be kind of managing our own milk supply and whether we had too much or not enough. And because she was an underweight baby, I don't know this is a stress for any breastfeeding person. It's a constant stress if you feel like your baby's maybe not getting enough or they're not growing enough. So we had that going on anyway, on top of trying to juggle two supplies. So I guess what I would say is that it was a really bonding thing. It was also a difficult thing. So I would say that people would need to think about their communication styles beforehand and really prepare themselves for having to just communicate constantly about managing the breastfeeding 
but also think about what style they want to do. If they just want to do that ongoing role where someone might pick up the 6am feed you know, ongoingly, then that sounds much more manageable to me than what we did. <laughs> and it actually sounds quite lovely. So you both get that shared moment with the child and that real bonding thing that you get when you're physically attached to them. Yeah, so I would think that that, that would be a better way to go. But I think one of the other really lovely things about what we did was that it was we're in no way the first people to do this, but it felt a bit groundbreaking. Any number of friends kind of turned to us and said, oh, what I wouldn't have done to have a spare pair of breasts in the house that could feed the baby. Okay. <laughs> There's lots of lesbian couples out there, or it might even just be some other random arrangement where someone's sister is going to take on part of the feeding. Or, you know, there's There's all kinds of arrangements where people might want to break out of the shell a little bit and try breastfeeding in, in more novel scenarios. Yeah, and I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just thought that I'm uh, chip in too. And another thing is, um, like, expect the unexpected. I think maybe originally we were thinking something like that might happen where you just take the 3 p.m. feed and we build it up. But when she had jaundice, the hospital was like, uh, yeah, you know, one of you's in the hospital. And it's, and so it was a bit more medicalized. And then, oh, Praise our daughter, but uh, she didn't take a bottle. <laughs> and oh, yeah. why would you? You know, exactly. she's smart. Boobs on tap. <laughs> um, yeah, and so she, but that was never in the plan either because our son just sort of had one, and so of course then one of us could like pump a bit and have some extra, and that could be useful in case I was nervous that my feed was dropping off. So there was elements like that. You know, um, what worked for one kid probably didn't work, may not have worked, assuming, you know, your first child went like this, so your second kid will go like that. Yeah. Um, I think that could apply universally to any family, but um, even more so, if you read a case study or hear a story, don't assume that, oh, that's what sharing breastfeeding looks like. It's, it's quite a unique and individualized journey, just like breastfeeding is, um, so too is sharing breastfeeding. Yeah, yeah we certainly know of couples where um, one, one of the couple has done all the breastfeeding, and the other one hasn't and and kind of regrets that, you know, now that her children are older, sort of regrets that she didn't try it at least. Um, and I, I'd hate to think that, that that was the case because there's so many other ways to connect with a child. Yeah. But if people are thinking about it and are thinking they might want to try it, then, yeah, it's worth sort of going into it with your eyes open that it can be pretty challenging. Um, and I was lucky that my milk supply came in, maybe because my body had done it before. Um, but it might not have, and that would have been challenging in itself because, you know, if if my partner's breastfeeding and I want I want in on it, but I can't get enough milk, you know, there's all kinds of um, emotional, you know, um, territory there that you might have to deal with with each other about how your your own relationship to your milk production and your relationship to your child and then your relationship with each other. Um, I don't I, <laughs> I don't want to put people off and say that it's it's fraught, but it really was a challenging time for us. Um, but at the same time, we kind of look back at it and really cherish it as well, that we both breastfed her. So um, I think it's worth it if people want to try it. It's definitely worth investigating. It's like a lot of things in life, isn't it? Often the most challenging can be the most rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Why have you chosen to share your story with us? There's a growing amount of resources, which is pretty exciting. I mean, even for us, definitely, as we, we chatted, some consultants had like some ideas but most of the ideas is about inducing lactation, not so much about sharing. 
rainbow family chart and however you want to look at it. And so I think just continuing, like if you know someone who's done it, ha- encouraging them to contribute their story and publish and get out the, the words out there because there was limited amount of knowledge on this topic. And I don't know that we had anybody that we could have chatted to about it. That's why we're happy to do podcasts like this. But just if anybody else has any knowledge, please, by all means, you know, get in touch with the ABA and get that knowledge out there because it's it's going to be useful. Thank you, Elka and Andrea, for sharing your story with us and our listeners. Bridget, we've heard why support and information was important for Elka and Andrea. You do a lot of amazing work supporting the queer community. Why do you think the queer community needs support to feed their babies? And how is it different to support that has traditionally been given to cisgender heterosexual couples? We need the support because queer parents, queer and trans parents, have every right to be able to nurture and nourish their babies just like everybody else. You know, we also love our babies and children and we should, we should also be able to access good support and education. And I know many people might say, but the education and support is out there. And that's true, it is out there. There's a lot out there. But there seems to be there's still a lack of understanding of the LGBTQIA plus experience of uh, journeying through life. And many services, especially in the pregnancy, birth and lactation world, are still very gendered and not affirming or inclusive. So there's still this assumption out there that of how a family should look, even though we, we like to feel that we have moved past that, but it's a huge experience from, you know, this is, it's how we're being conditioned, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, so there's still a lot of prejudices out there and assumptions and, you know, a lot of, you know, transphobia and homophobia and, you know, all the phobias. And this is actually really very harmful. And then on top of that, I think most people are quite well aware by now, but the LGBTQIA plus community as a whole does experience very high rates of mental health challenges, uh, trauma, and also suicide as well. So finding services that are affirming and, and inclusive and equitable can actually be life-saving in that way. Many uh, LGBTQIA plus parents are also not so much in connection with their own families. Of course, there are always exceptions out there, but because the process of coming out and then also deciding to be a parent can also raise a lot within your own family context. Many are disconnected from families or they have just, or rejected, you know, things like that. There's a bit of, there's quite a bit of isolation. So for our community, community itself, it's really important because we don't have a lot of family around. So this project, even though it is very much about giving information, I think one of the things that is going to come out of it is the feeling that you are being seen and you are hearing other people's stories from your community. And, you know, you get to actually see other people that are from the queer community. Now, I know that the ABA are working alongside Rainbow Families New South Wales on an exciting new project for the LGBTQIA plus community. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, please, Bridget? So this is a partnership project between the Rainbow Families and the Australian Breastfeeding Association. 
couple of years ago, Rainbow Families did a community consultation and it was found that there was a significant gap in support services for LGBTQIA plus families that were looking for support specifically around lactation and human milk feeding. So with that information, Rainbow Families obtained funding from Lush and the Vashidara Foundation to cover the development of this specific resource. And also part of that was acknowledging that this would need to be done with folks that are knowledgeable of lactation and infant feeding and, of course, the ABA. That's how that relationship came to be. The project consists of a resource and four pilot lactation education classes that will be run over a year. And then, of course, an evaluation after that. So the resource, which initially started as a booklet, has now turned into a book because we've realized and have learned that the rainbow community is so diverse. And because we really want to get as much information to the community, it means that we've had to put a lot of education and information in the resource. So this has been put together by um, both Rainbow Families and particularly the ABA, all the knowledge that the ABA has. And this resource also includes personal stories, which are really lovely because they're stories shared from the community. And I really want to thank the parents that offered their time to send us those stories. We also have lots of beautiful photos that are of queer and trans parents that Rainbow Families New South Wales actually contacted Rainbow Families Queensland and um, they supported us in sourcing a photographer and also gaining some photographs from the community in Queensland. So this resource, even though it's put together with Rainbow Families New South Wales, I feel like it's an Australian-wide resource. We've also had a lot of input into the resource from other ABA counsellors, including many ABA counsellors who are also from the the rainbow community. And we've also had some input from the intersex community as well in terms of some of the language in there. So the resource is also written using inclusive language. So I know that might be a bit different from a lot of other ABA resources, but inclusive language is really important for our community. A lot of time has been spent really trying to use language to the best of our knowledge in this resource. We know language is always changing, so the idea is that in two years' time, we will review the resource and also update any research, because I also understand that in this field, there's a lot of new research coming out as well. It has taken a while because it's been such a huge project, just that resource in itself, and now we're at the stage where we're actually starting to look at the lactation classes. The lactation classes will be taught by ABA counsellors with the support of Rainbow Families as well. But because of the content, it does mean that a lot of what is being taught now is uh, needs to be rewritten and also some new stuff needs to be added in as well so that the information in these classes are really specifically for the people that are attending. At this point, because of COVID, will probably be run by Zoom. So in a way, that's really exciting because it's not just for Sydney people, it's anybody in Australia will be able to attend or beyond as well. And this project's really exciting because even though there is some information out there for rainbow families, most of it is international and that's fine, but a lot of people are looking for local knowledge now and especially within the Australian context. 
because we do have different experiences here in Australia as LGBTQIA folks. Fantastic. Thank you, Bridget. So just, I guess, really affirms why these resources are so important. Yes, that's right. So for more on this topic, you can go to the ABA's website at breastfeeding.asn.au and check out the show notes for a link to this episode's blog post, which contains further links and information. To speak to a breastfeeding counsellor, call the National Breastfeeding Helpline on 1800 686 268. Or you can also use live chat available via our website at breastfeeding.asn.au. Find your local ABA group by visiting our website where you can also find loads of breastfeeding information and a link to join the association as a member. You might also like to join our Facebook group to continue the conversation. Just search for Breastfeeding with ABA. Please answer the three joining questions so that we can add you quickly. As volunteers with the Australian Breastfeeding Association, we follow a code of ethics that guides us online and in person. To keep things neutral, we interact respectfully and non-politically. You can learn more about our code of ethics on our website at breastfeeding.asn.au. We would love it if you could share this podcast and our website with your friends and family so that other families can use this information and find support too. Thank you for listening and thank you for joining me today, Bridget. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you, Nicole.